Thank you, Casey. Um, so Montana actually has 700 identified cemeteries, identified ones, and that doesn't include the forgotten roadside burials, uh, monuments, plots in abandoned places, and the remains of once living people that thrived on the land for thousands and thousands of years. Their ashes are scattered to the winds across the big sky. Others repose in mountains, across plains, in trees, and valleys and hills, in and beneath our cities, our towns, our roads, and shopping centers. It's hard to imagine how many people may have walked in our footsteps and literally left pieces of themselves here. And it's poignant to realize that not, not all of those who were planted here uh, remained in uninterrupted rest. So my aim here is to actually explore a few of the first cemeteries to consider a few individuals whose rest was rudely interrupted and to briefly explore the evolution of Montana's places for the dead. So time, weather, shifting river courses, urban encroachment uh, at Fort Benton, for example, took tolls on the earliest fort and post cemeteries. Urban development, as you can see here at Fort Benton, um, as in other places too, prompted moving the original post cemetery and the county cemetery, um, uh, which was established in the 1860s, to the current Riverside Cemetery in the 1880s. Cemetery obliteration or preservation really depends upon two major factors, continued relationships of the living with those interred and the need for progress. Fort Cana was a Hudson's Bay Company post founded near present-day Arley and in Lake County in 1846. It operated under the Angus McDonald family until 1871. Well, the fort's small preserved cemetery, half a mile from the fort, has been maintained by local McDonald family descendants and the Fort Connor Restoration Society. It includes a really unusual feature. If you look at the bells that are between those two tombstones there. So um, before the widespread practice of embalming the dead, the fear of awakening in a coffin was, you know, uh, or being buried alive was a really common terror. Bells sometimes were placed above the grave, attached a string in the hand of the deceased. And here we have, uh, although no string is actually attached, we have that custom persisting, which I think is pretty interesting. Catholic missions like St. Ignatius, many of them schools for Indian children, dot Montana's landscapes, and some have well-preserved cemeteries, although the graves are often unmarked. Established in 1854, by 1855, at least a thousand Salish, Kootenai, Kalispell, and Ponderay had settled in nearby to, the, to the, uh, the mission. And the mission burial ground was the final resting place uh, for Catholic clergy and for First Nation Catholic converts on the Flathead Reservation. So the mission cemetery eventually was way overcrowded and many uh, burials were moved to a different site. Unfortunately, there's no comprehensive record of who was moved, uh, but there are a few scattered headstones in this space here. Uh, in it's two square blocks um, to at least mark the site where the cemetery was. 
um, and many, many hundreds of people still lie beneath the sod there. It remains a sacred place to the St. Ignatius community, and uh, it is Montana's oldest existing Catholic cemetery, as far as I could determine. St. Mary's Mission was the first Catholic mission uh, in the Northwest, established in 1841, but the original cemetery and, a law, and the original mission have, have both been lost. Reestablished in 1866 at its current site, St. Mary's has two cemeteries, one a Catholic cemetery and the other adjacent to the Catholic cemetery is the Salish cemetery. Both of those date to the 1860s. And then the Salish graves, by really stark contrast, are entirely unmarked. So the endless stream of westward wagons intruded on a long-established homeland of upsetting the harmony of thousands of years. The Thomas Massacre illustrates how retaliation was blunt and cruel. William Thomas, his seven-year-old son Charlie, and their driver broke from the wagon train and despite warnings, traveled alone. They were really over-anxious to reach their family in the Gallatin Valley, so they, they decided to strike out. Days later, other travelers came upon the Thomas party. Their bodies were full of arrows. Unusual marking sticks that you can see there in the lower right-hand corner of the photo were reeds tied with pods of cloth in the, you can, probably they had um, tobacco, but they apparently were never open, so we don't know for sure. Um, these and personal items were salvaged from the site and returned to the family. They included Charlie's well-worn boot that you see there with the missing pole strap, and its mate was never found. The three lie in a common grave off I-90 between Reed Point and Graycliff. The site is a reminder that uh, this was one point in time and that you know the past is really not so distant from us today. Once settlers began to add their dead to the soil, early graves were haphazard and most often they were unmarked. This handsome marker is unusual. It's probably made from a wagon bed. Montana had no tombstone makers until the late 1870s. Wood was scarce and marble tombstones were very, very hard to come by. You had to order them at the local mercantile and they were, you can imagine, expensive to freight overland. Often people were so transient they didn't have time to wait for them to be delivered. And as late as 1883, when Helena inventoried all of its existing cemeteries, about a half a dozen cemeteries, only one-fourth of all the graves were marked. An official stated at the time, and I quote, some of the noblest men and women lie buried, yet their resting places cannot be identified. After considerable inquiry, we do not find that plot of the lots is kept. The county grave digger keeps no record of interments. He digs a hole and covers a corpse, and the name of the dead is buried in the same oblivion as his body. Documentation of deaths is problematic. Often markers were nameless, and newspapers didn't always publish obituaries, death notices, or, or causes of death. Epidemics were poorly covered in the press for fear of um, causing panic, and death certificates in Montana were not required until 1908. However, there are some physical reminders of those who died with their boots on in some violent manner, and others who died too soon. 
uh, in Montana's mining camps and boom towns. Nearly every mining camp had a burial ground, most often located upon the uh, community's highest point. That was true in Helena. You can see the arrow there point, is pointing to a few of the uh, remaining tombstones. It was lost in 1875 with the, the construction of the first central school. Now beneath the third central school, mining camp cemeteries like Helena's are easily lost as residents move on, buildings crumble, and the land is used for other purposes. Bannock, Nevada City, and Virginia City, however, fortunately retained their original burial grounds. Bannock's Boot Hill, number nine there where the arrow is up on the hill, uh, may be the state's earliest surviving community burial ground. It has one of Montana's oldest tombstones, hand cut and crude. The stone marks the grave of William H. Bell, who died in 1862. Unmarked graves include victims of the vigilantes and others. Difficult accessibility and the desire for a more formal burial ground is likely why the community established a new cemetery around 1880. Doesn't look very new, does it? <laughs> the Montana sister cities of Nevada and Virginia boomed when gold was discovered at uh, Alder Gulch in 1863. Nevada City's original cemetery is still intact and even still in minimal use, I guess you would say, but it does have dozens of early unmarked burials like this one, including the burial of George Ives, who was hanged for murder in 1863, and also of Nicholas Tebald, his victim. Nevada City quickly faded, leaving its burial ground pretty much intact and in place. Virginia City's original boot hill is preserved thanks to the infamy of the five road agents uh, that you see there. The stigma of lying forever next to these five guys was so repugnant to many that they opened a new cemetery and many people moved their loved ones, but not all those buried on Boot Hill um, had loved ones to accomplish that task. And so William and Clara Dalton, who died of typhoid in 1863, were left to eternal rest on Boot Hill after their four children moved on. In 1907, Lou Calloway described Boot Hill firsthand, and his description is really interesting. According to his account, there were two lines of burials at that time, this was in 1907, one line on top of the hill and another slightly downslope to the west. There were three stones forming a triangle marking each anonymous grave that was there. Controversy over which line contained the road agent's graves was settled by Adriel B. Davis, who was a vigilante and actually helped bury the five road agents. Davis knew the order of the burials and pointed out the grave of George Lane, and so exhumation of um, Lane's deformed foot confirmed his identity, and thus the other graves were marked for the first time. Lane's shellacked foot, with the sock still attached, was on exhibit until distant relatives reclaimed it in 2006 under the Native American Graves and Protection Repa Repatriation Act. Families scattered the ashes of the cremated foot over Lane's grave at that time. In the 1920s, the Dalton's grandchildren 
returned to Virginia City to place the commemorative monument on Boot Hill, not on the actual gravesite because nobody really knew where that was. But they, along with Martin Lyon, who was murdered in January 1865, the five road agents and others most certainly still rest there. Now, although Helena's first cemetery lies under Central School, as I mentioned before, another property shown here in the 1875 panorama might be termed Boot Hill. Helena's hanging tree uh, served its gruesome purpose at least a dozen times that we know of. And the victims, some of them anyway, were buried in the city or Catholic cemeteries, but others were likely buried near the place of execution. Evidence twice has surfaced that in the residential neighborhood, when the tree was cut down in 1875, became developed, and one set of remains then surfaced in 1900 when workmen were digging a foundation for a house in the neighborhood. They discovered a skeleton. But then a second set of remains was discovered in 1931 when workmen were installing gas lines. A pair of unusual fancy boots that matched the boots here you see in this photograph identify the person probably as James Daniels, who was hanged March 2, 1866. The town of Colson was not a mining camp, but it was a river town on the north bank of the Yellowstone River that thrived from about 1877 to the mid-1880s. The town was doomed when the Northern Pacific Railroad prompted the founding of Billings nearby. The short-lived community had a violent history where numerous people died with their boots on. Colson's Boot Hill today sits in a rather unlovely setting, urban setting above Billings Main Street. It's about a mile east of present-day downtown. It includes an unknown number of graves. It was little more than a pasture in the 1920s when an obelisk was placed there to mark it. And in the 1970s, Boy Scouts added the crosses that you see there, um, not necessarily on actual graves. Stable growing communities welcomed Montana's first tombstone makers. Uh, probably the first ones were Kirkaldi and Carr, who advertised in December of 1878. In 1880, Thomas and Sandberg produced a handsome monument to advertise their stone-cutting business in Butte. Uh, and in 1881, Daniel Dutro and J.F. Keelhauer founded the Benton Stone and Marble Works in Fort Benton. But A.K. Prescott was probably <clears throat> the first to establish a long-term monument business, opening Marble Works in Helena in 1884, and soon after in Butte. By 1890, his company had produced 3,000 tombstones in Montana. His signature graces many community cemeteries, this one and also there's, there's a lot of them all over the place. Um, this one happens to be in Virginia City, and this one in Bozeman. Uh, the child's chair was a Prescott specialty, and so we have signed examples here in Bozeman, uh, in Helena and also in Butte that I know of. Physicians in 19th century Montana considered the definition of epidemic to be five cases of the same disease. The Silver Camp of Elkhorn has a really pathetic legacy. Elkhorn's remote 
but well-preserved cemetery high up on the hill, sort of in this interesting wooded slope, graphically tells the story of a diphtheria epidemic in 1889 that claimed almost all of Elkhorn's children. But just as tragic is another story, later that same September, two boys, Harry Walton, who was nine, and Alvin Nelson, who was 10, somehow escaped this epidemic. They found a quicksilver container of black powder that adults detonated for community celebrations, and this one had apparently been overlooked. Uh, the powder exploded and blew the boy, boys into so many pieces that they had to be buried together. A proper burial ground like Highland Cemetery at Great Falls, which was first platted in 1888, along with churches and schools, was one of the very first signs of a stable and educated community. Boot hills were necessarily haphazard and usually not permanent, prompting many Western communities to relocate their early, earliest cemeteries. Relocating a cemetery is not a pleasant task, but encountering coffins and human remains unexpectedly is even less pleasant. Forgotten cemeteries and family burials uh, make grisly surprises for the living. Beginning circa 1866 in Missoula, uh, the first dead were buried at the base of Mount Jumbo, you see that arrow, in what is now the Lower Rattlesnake Historic District. You can see the, uh, those, those things are wooden headboards, actually, that, uh, that the arrow is pointing to. So there are no burial records, but this cemetery was um, in use, frequent use, until about 1884, when the current Missoula Cemetery was platted. A few family members reportedly moved loved ones to the new cemetery, and the city developed a residential neighborhood on top of the burial ground, as shown in the plat map of 1889. Cherry Street homeowners today are very much aware that their homes may be over potential burials, and they're very careful where they dig. And some homeowners even report pieces of coffins in the walls of their basements. In 1974, one Cherry Street homeowner was adding a porch at the back of his house when the backhoe turned up human remains. The county coroner determined that there were two sets of bones encased in uh, decayed wooden, wooden coffins. The bones, along with pieces of metal hardware and splintered wood, were turned over to the University of Montana's anthropology department where several gen generations of anthropology students have since studied them. Over the decades, students have solved some of the mystery, uh, determining that one individual was a female adult. Coffin hardware fragments are consistent with 19th century casket styles, but whose eternal sleep was so rudely interrupted? The style of the wooden casket, which is narrow at the uh, feet and widening at the shoulders like this one here, and its silver handles match examples from the 1870s and 1880s. Student analysis of the adult bones revealed that the female was probably between 25 and 34 years old with a poor diet and porosity of the bones, which might indicate tuberculosis. General Land Office records revealed that in 1871 and 1872, Cyrus McQuirk was the landowner. Well, on May 9, 1872, Henrietta McQuirk Harrison, who was visiting her brothers, Cyrus and William, 
died of consumption, the common term for tuberculosis. Scientific analysis of the bones, including testing for tuberculosis, could further strengthen the hypothesis that the skeleton was actually that of Henrietta Harrison. The bones have served an important function as teaching tools at the university. In Helena, St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery on Oaks was in use from the 1860s until it was abandoned in about 1900. In uh, the 1970s, the city acquired the dilapidated property and created Robinson Park, a passive park. At least 1,065 graves remain undisturbed there. Remains have surfaced several times when the city crews removed street paving to install water and gas mains. In 2004, several caskets came to light, including this one, which is a child's casket with a viewing window and the words, our darling, embossed upon it. Workers unfortunately removed an 1890 newspaper from the casket which could have identified this child. Likewise, in 2018, city crews uncovered some seven more caskets bordering this particular park. Both times, workers scratched their heads and wondered at these grisly discoveries, but really all they had to do was just sort of turn around and read the sign that told the history of the park. So it's a good idea to do some research before you dig. You know? At Clancy in Jefferson County in 2005, a backhoe operator excavating a basement for a residence in the newly platted Red Cliff Estates hit a metal casket. The impact broke, broke the viewing window and the skull was dislodged, which rolled out and came to rest in the soil. Long dark hair, which was fashioned into a bun, hinted that the deceased was female. The county sheriff was summoned and the casket with the silver plated handles was carefully extracted and photographed. The remains were again sent to the anthropology lab at the University of Montana. Research potentially identified the deceased as Evelyn Harvey Eddy, whose parents, Silas and Francis Harvey, were the original owners of the Redcliffe Farm in the early 1870s. Their home still stands, this home here, on the edge of the new housing development. Anthropologists determined that the skull was female, and tracing uh, family Harvey deaths, rare funeral records indicate that burials of all the other female Harvey family members were all recorded in Benton Avenue Cemetery, all except Evelyn, who died in 1887, and there was no record of her burial. So the family apparently buried her in the field near her childhood home. Her casket and remains were quietly reburied in the Clancy Cemetery. While burials on family properties and in semi-abandoned pioneer burial grounds continue today, cemeteries of necessity became less haphazard as communities stabilized and began to grow. In the late 1700s, a movement began in Paris over health concerns of urban burial grounds and the exposure of human remains. Père Lachaise was that first cemetery, and because of this horrible overcrowding, the movement spread to the United States, and floating coffins called bone gumbo in the South, you know, really became a health concern. And so in Montana, this was really the first well-designed cemetery near Boston, Mount Auburn. But here in Montana, 
cemeteries began to be better platted and really more attractive. Uh, Buttes, Mount Moriah, which was platted in 1877-1878, is one of the earliest ones. And uh, Missoula City Cemetery, platted in 1885, also is one of these lovely park-like cemeteries. The person who, Harry Wheeler, who platted the Missoula Cemetery, also platted Forest Vale here in Helena. And finally, in Kalispell in 1903, really, this is the model of the park-like cemetery, Conrad Memorial Cemetery, uh, which includes these beautiful sweeps of, of grass with embedded markers, the Conrad Monument, which is a focal point, and the ferry steps, which lead down to carriage path where Mrs. Conrad could come up and, in private and visit her, her husband's mausoleum. So we have these beautiful cemeteries that really have evolved from the rather haphazard cemeteries of the uh, frontier days, and that sort of explains the afterlife in the big sky. Thank you.